Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic and its aftermath, we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Over 44 million Americans are retired, with more joining the ranks each year. With good reason, much of the advice people seek about their own retirement is focused on their finances. But what about the changes in how we and others see us when we retire? What's the process of letting go of work? And what other dimensions of life after work might we prepare for? So today, we have a a wonderful conversation lined up to talk with Rebecca Milliken. She's the author of a thought-provoking memoir called Gaining Altitude, Retirement and Beyond. It's about her own process of what another writer has called rewirement and what she's learned. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Rebecca. Thank you, Ron, and thanks for having me on your show. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, some, some, um, how you connect to Maine, for instance. Um, when I, before I was born, my parents came every summer, and so I have come to Maine every summer of my life, and now that I'm retired, I can spend even longer in Maine. Um, It's a place that is very different from where I live, which is Washington, D.C., and thus offers great respite and peace. Mm. I love Maine. I love coming here. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about um, your your work world and and what you did um, that you retired from. Um, uh, After I graduated from college, I became a teacher for about 10 years, And then I decided that I wanted to work um, with people um, at a different level. I got very interested in nonverbal communication and decided to go back to graduate school in something that not many people have heard of called dance movement therapy. It's a form of expressive arts therapy. And um, I, I was very lucky to be able to find a program that was both stimulating and inspiring and ended up working for 10 years in hospitals with groups of people. Um, I then became a more regular conventional talk therapist and for the next 25 years was had a private practice and then began a process of disengagement from that and um, looking to what, what might come next and that's what my book is about. So when you were in the world of work, um or, or younger, even did you know people who were retired? What was? What, what, did you have any first impressions of of what retirement was like? Um, <clears throat> when Ron uh, sent me the question about this, I I laughed because in all the time I was working, not once before I began to get restless, did I ever consider the concept of retirement. Um, it just never occurred to me to be thinking about it. Uh, and and living in Washington, D.C., which is, I can honestly say, is a fairly workaholic culture, nobody else was talking about retirement either. So I had, I had no notion of it. If, if anything, um, people considered both 
um, were very defined by what they did um, and also what they were going to do. So I really didn't have a notion about retirement before the process started for me, which was, um, I have to say, very unconscious before it became, it rose to the level of consciousness. So what began to um, give you that, that um, s- signal of a shift of unconscious to conscious? What were some of the things that you began to pay attention to? Well, <clears throat> in the beginning, uh, in, in my, my first chapter in my book, I describe a conversation with a friend of mine who was also a psychotherapist who one, uh, one year decided that she was going to retire and did it over many months and moved to Maine. And she came back into town one day, and we went out for lunch, and she said to me, you know, um, you may be more ready to retire than you know. And I went into strong denial kind of felt sweat bead on my forehead and said, absolutely not. I I love my work. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. But um, then in the months sort of after that, and this was in 2011, um, strange things began to happen. I I began to feel very restless with everything. Um, Well, not with everything, but more restless than usual. And I began to notice that I felt um, at times distracted, and sort of lacking in focus, the kind of focused listening I was used to when I was sitting in sessions. And that that still didn't rise to the level of um, my saying to myself, oh, Rebecca, maybe it's ready to, to think about what you can do next. But um, eventually, there were a couple of times where I really realized that I was disengaging from my work. Um, uh, I was also at the time reading a lot about transitions, and William Bridges is this wonderful author who wrote a book called Transitions, and he talks about the four stages of an ending. And the first stage, or uh, very, uh, I don't know if it's the first stage, but at any rate, disengagement is a major feature. Um, and the other, the other thing he talks about is dis disidentification and I realized that I was beginning um, to sort of detach disengage and really um, almost disidentify with what I had been doing with sort of normal routines which startled me and didn't feel consciously planned but it was sort of a process an organic process that was going on Mm. So in your in your work um, as a therapist, that paying attention to people in session, um, that's the essence of it. And so you began to say, oh, maybe that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm daydreaming when that's happening. Exactly, exactly. And, and you don't want to do that. Yeah. You really want to give your very best attention <clears throat> to people. So that's, that's when I really began to question um, what was going on and to give serious thought to perhaps the fact that I was ready, even though I had no idea what would come next, really give serious thought to perhaps letting go of all of this. Um, that didn't mean it came you know, quickly. It took me, it's a process. As we all know, change is such a process. And it took a long time of questioning, particularly since... Um, I, I think many of us have been raised with a very puritanical kind of ethic of working, contributing to the world, you know, doing good work. And I was sort of a worker bee in my, in my life. So the thought of giving all of this up that I'd worked so hard to learn how to do was, um, 
at, at the very first, very, um, it was anathema to my thinking, and it was scary, and it was, it was filled with questions like, well, what if, if I give it all up, will I go into free fall? Will I, will I feel useless? Will I be bored and boring? And so sort of tackling all those questions and knowing that I couldn't entirely answer them um, was really a very important part of the process. Um, the other thing that was an important part of the process all along has been having conversations with people about this and finding out what other people are thinking, um, how other people, if they were thinking about retiring, how they were doing it. And there were a couple of people who I describe in the book who I really did seek out before I ultimately you know, made the decision um, who had done it. And that was kind of comforting to me that people had taken a leap and left behind really very large careers and identities and taken up something very different. So that was really helpful. So you began to approach it like any good student might. You began to kind of study and and ask people for their experience so that you would gain some perspective. Right. I um, I should say that the <laughs> it's not surprising that this coincided, this process coincided with my turning 60. <clears throat> and so I, that was, a, uh, for all of us, that's a, that's a milestone. And I began by re- reading and being inspired a lot. I, I had a friend who was sort of known as the guru on creativity after 65, Gene Cohen, Dr. Gene Cohen. And he had written a couple of books about, um, as I said, creativity, but also about the mature brain. And his thesis, as so many other people's um, since then, was that um, the studies that were done before 2000 on older people were, were primarily done on people who were in nursing homes or who had limited access to resources. And thus, a whole segment of older people who might be functioning much better, were left out of these studies. Mm. So his research kind of indicated, didn't kind of, it indicated that there was a lot going on in the older brain that was underestimated, that we, we always heard these narratives about diminishment and lack of memory and whatever. But in fact, the exciting thing to me was the new neuroscience was that there were capacities that developed in the older brain that had been unrecognized. For example, um, Gene Cohn talks about something called bilateral functioning, and he, he, what, he, what he said was that in the older brain, at times, both the left brain and the right brain can operate at the same simultaneously, thus lending both what each, what each inform to a decision-making process or to, a, to insights. Um, and there, uh, there's another book called The Secret Life of the Grown-Up Brain by Barbara Strauch, who also talk about the, the various ways in which older people can approach issues that have, uh, she never used the word wisdom, but a certain kind of insight that really brings, brings something different to the table. So those books really inspired me to begin to think about possibilities and the narrative of opportunity rather than this narrative that I felt AARP and other groups put out that was, oh, it's all about what you're losing now, now that you're 60. Right. So, you know, you and I are approximately the same age. And, and so that experience of thinking about older age 
there was that common nar- narrative. Some of it was informed by our grandparents or even great-grandparents and what their experience was, and it led to this l- larger narrative about diminishment or loss. Right. And, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is is that we are um, healthier and we, we are living longer. And if we're lucky enough to, to both have that ahead of us and also have sort of some financial stability, um, there's this possibility of a whole new chapter before we get truly a- aging. Um, Catherine Bateson wrote, who had written Composing a Life when she was younger, wrote a wonderful book called Composing a Further Life. And she posits that because of enhanced l- longevity and um, kind of resources, if, if we're lucky enough to have that, um, there's this age that she calls the age of active wisdom between 60 and 75, where there's possibility for further engagement in purposeful learning in new activity and um, contribution to community. So that that really inspired me. Um, the other thing is I re- started reading a lot of books about what people did with with their third chapters. And because I... I did feel a little intimidated by people like Grandma Moses and Gandhi and uh, Matisse, who did all these big, huge things um, or great things. But what I what also comforted me was that a lot of people simply did something creative and and exciting for them, and they didn't have to go and start a nonprofit or do something huge and important after they got done doing what they used to do. So there's that Calvinistic piece of, oh, yeah, it has to be big. It has to be big. I'm so happy to be talking with Rebecca Milliken um, this afternoon, uh, author of Gaining Altitude, Retirement and Beyond, published by Atmosphere Press in 2021. So um, not all of the voices that you heard were, were saying, go for it. There are people who were saying, what, you're, you're thinking about retirement? That's right, including a, a voice in my head. <laughs> um, so uh, in Washington, um, what I experienced, what I did, I, as I said, I started talking to lots of people and even um, having what I called focus groups about uh, retirement or about creativity and you know being older. And most of the people that I spoke to in D.C. initially um, were sort of in shock that I would be considering giving up what I had been doing. Um, and many people, I think, felt, you know, the sort of question of, well, what do you do after you get done doing? And why would you give this up? So there were lots of conversations and uh, about how you, how it's possible to morph what you, all the things that you love about what you did into something else. Not that not that you know what that's going to look like, but just about the possibilities and also sort of examining all of the skill sets we have, what we want to take into the next phase. But I didn't end up uh, developing a how-to or a, pl- uh, you know, this is what how you should move through this. In fact, I really want to say writing this this book is not is not tips, it's not how-to, it's not formula. It's a memoir about me bumbling through this process and then finding my way out to the other side. 
Yes, and, and I think that's, that's what's inspiring to me about the book, is that we're not given a list of things to do. We're, we're, by reading it, we cause, it causes us to think about ourselves. And, and that's, in some ways, um, that was the reaction that you were getting, I think, from people who were disbelieving that you might con- contemplate retirement because they hadn't thought about it themselves, and they, they were perhaps reflecting, I'm not ready for this. That's right. That, that's absolutely right. The other thing is that people said is you have to have a plan. Before, before you leave something, you have to have a plan for what comes next because I think that quiets the anxiety that everybody feels to think that we can really plan and then we can jump into something. So again, I'll go back to William Bridge's book because <clears throat> he talks about the stages of transition. The most important stage, I think, he thinks is is having a real ending. Mm. And what he says about a real ending is is that you really really can't have a a, a totally new beginning unless you really let go of what was um, and gr- and grieve it. I mean realize that it, it is a loss. It is, you know, it's not all wonderful even though you you get tired of doing what you were doing. You're you're leaving behind. He even likens it as I do to to a kind of death. And in some ways, it's a necessity to be that. And then what he suggests is that in order for you to have a true new beginning, um, something entirely um, maybe unanticipated, a true rewirement or renewal, you must have a period, not necessarily a time period, but a, a sort of a symbolic empty time between this, what he calls the neutral zone, where you where you've left behind what you, the old way of being in the world, you allow yourself not to know how the new way of being in the world is. And you kind of just sort of, um, another author calls it a gravityless period, a loss of continuity. And you allow yourself to be there and tolerate it so that it's like um, in tribal cultures that, you know, the period when they send the adolescent into the forest, going into the darkness, or, or um, he also likens it to, to Odysseus's journey when he's trying to come home and it takes him 10 years and he's gotten all these challenges which he must learn how to solve without doing it the way he used to do it. So in your, in your um, counseling work, you must have helped numbers of people through transitions. Was it then surprising to say, oh, that, I need to pay attention to that myself? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in fact, um, I think throughout, particularly in, in the latter part of, you know, when I was doing individual therapy, I again and again with my clients, we would wonder about how lo- how change really happens, and and also get impatient with how long it seemed to take. And I think often that was just because endings require really letting go. And that's so difficult for people in our culture. Um, so, I, I, I'm, I say in the book, I, I was never very good at endings. I would jump into the next thing. You know, I sort of would get a job before I left a job, or or not leave a job forever and ever. Um, uh, so, this this really presented both a real challenge to me, this ending and beginning, and. Um, a real opportunity to learn a new way of doing an ending, which meant really ending. 
So if you, if you don't mind, just describe what you did. What was your ending? How did you create the, the break between your work? I mean, let's, let's hear that story. Um, well, uh, as I said before, during these months, it was sort of almost a full year when I started feeling restless and I distracted and lost of focus. And then there were a couple of client moments when I realized that I was really not myself. And um, I felt I was not doing justice to a, a great service to my clients. And so I just, you know, I sort of came to this moment of clarity that I really was ready. And, um, and then... As therapists will know, it takes a long time to to say to do all the things you need to do to say goodbye to clients, which I did. Um, so that was a process that also helped me of sort of um, processing with people sort of what this ending was all about. Um, and then finally, uh, very symbolically, packing up my office and turning in my keys. And then um, I was lucky enough. To real, I mean, having read Bridges and knowing about this neutral zone necessity, I was lucky enough to be able to, to close the door of my office and close the door of my apartment in D.C. and come to Maine. But the challenge was to be in Maine differently than I had been here before. Uh, ironically, in the beginning, that wasn't difficult at all because I felt so unmoored, untethered, that I simply um, kind of sat still a lot in the beginning, which was very unusual, and um, spent a lot of time alone and just sort of staring into space or listening to the wind and the trees or the ocean or the seals or whatever. Um, And then, again, gradually... um, Well, actually, I heard an interview on Terry Gross about Oliver Sacks, and I love Oliver Sacks, and it, um, there was a quote that, in there that said something about, um, I can't really remember it exactly, but something about in order to, to uh, repossess ourselves, we must um, uh, recollect our inner narrative or, or develop our inner narrative in order to make sense of our life in an ongoing way. So for some reason, that sort of mobilized me, and I decided to go and get out of the... the um, leave the cabin and go and talk to some people and I did that and began to again find models for people who um, had left behind something. There was one particular, I have a friend here on Mount Desert who was a lobster fisherman and he he was a very intense lobster fisherman, long hours plus he was very involved in community stuff and all that and um, when he got ready to retire, I, I didn't talk to him about it, but he retired, sold his boat, and took up bird carving. And um, has, now makes the most beautiful bird carvings. So that just, that really gave me pause, you know, that somebody who had done something that was so physical and so out in the world and kind of busy to become to take up this thing which he he didn't know anything about, to become a real learner, a beginner, and to work at it in with such focus and intensity. So that was an inspiration. And I spent the summer thinking about things like that and wondering whether, still not knowing what I was going to do when I got back to Washington, if anything, but that I wanted to sort of be open to all the possibilities. 
So um, we, we don't know what his inner narrative was, but there's something that you said that it had something to do with him becoming a learner. So um, it was that your case as well, that you, that inner narrative said, I've always learned things, I've always enjoyed learning things, it's time to learn something new. Right, right. I Yeah, I remember at some point when I was doing some research, I remember thinking, I need to, I need to find out what beginner's mind looks, is. I mean, I've never been a Buddhist or done that, but it did appeal to me that begin you know this whole notion that you start from zero you go back to really not knowing anything or throwing away all the things you've known in order to be open to entirely new ways of learning so that's i mean certainly i i read and i researched and that was very familiar to me but then but i still didn't know what was going to happen other than my going on having conversations with people and in fact at some point even though i didn't know what what I would do with all of this, I decided that I would um, I would make it formal these conversations with people, and I decided to call this my quote unquote retirement project, so that people would stop asking me what I was doing <laughs> in my time when I was back in Washington. And um, I I said to friends and colleagues, I would like to formally interview you if you're willing about what your experiences has been. And by this time. There were a number of people I knew that had been retired or that I could think of, so I sought them out and and interviewed them and asked them questions that really uh, that that I was asking myself, like, so are is what's important to you now that wasn't before, or what um, what does success and fulfillment look like at this stage? Of course, all of these people were in my age cohort, I I have to say, but um, and then. Um, and then the, the question that most intrigued me at that point was, how is it that what I want to do now or how I am in the world is so different than how I used to be? I mean, that just, I found that so startling that I wasn't who I used to be because I, it never occurred to me that I would change. So, I mean, I don't know if it's dramatic change, just my whole way of sort of being in the world just felt different. So for you, the the bridges is kind of empty place or the neutral zone um, was a period first here in Maine of kind of sitting with yourself, recognizing that you needed to do something more. This interview process became your retirement project. What else did you learn in this neutral zone before things began to take take shape a little bit for you in terms of a new beginning? What else did I learn? I learned that... Um well, one of the things that was just so different was being present, just being in the moment, um, and and beginning to um, the the sort of thing of uh, Bridges has a term that I love, which is um, attentive inactivity, mm-hmm. which is sort of this way of noticing and just kind of the things that you don't notice when you're busy and in a hurry. And I took that back to Washington when I went because. You can imagine that reentry to in September in Washington after this time was really quite uh, challenging because everybody was in a hurry and bustling. But you know that sort of feeling that I had when I was here in Maine, which is sort of just moment to moment, kind of noticing what was happening inside myself, so I could begin to listen to what was coming up from inside as well as sort of reacting to what was on the outside. Um, and so when I got back to Washington. Um, I, 
began to develop after my, I have to admit, my initial frenzy of, oh my gosh, what, what am I going to do here? Um, to develop um, kind of habits of being that were quieter and more alone um, and sort of, uh, as I called it, kind of with not withdrawn exactly. That's why I don't like the word retire. Um, but I was just sort of in my own space a lot more than than I was nor- normally in my old life. Um, yeah. So when I read that section, um, there was this sense, oh, you know, I, I've tried to retire. <laughs> I don't think I gave myself that because there was a certain guilt that I wasn't doing enough. And I think you experienced some of that and you've, you've talked to others who experienced that. So there was that, um, the process of that empty zone was really giving yourself permission not to do. Exactly. And in fact, um, I did a book talk with a, with a group um, from Washington initially when my book came out. And one of the gentlemen in the, in the group who is our age said, Thank you for naming that because it, it really so much um, in our culture we are we don't give ourselves permission to stop. That's that's looked on as dysfunction. That's looked on as failure. That's looked on as um, what's the matter with you? Get busy. And I that's why I really recommend reading Bridge about the neutral zone because it it you know it doesn't have to be a long period. It can be very symbolic. But this notion that if we stop for a moment and give ourselves space just to be, something might happen that we can't imagine before when we're busy that might be quite wonderful and um, nourishing um, and also provide sort of insight into whatever might happen that you might never have imagined that's pretty wonderful. Mm. We're talking this afternoon with Rebecca Milliken, the author of Gaining Altitude, Retirement and Beyond. It's a memoir that was published this year, uh, 2021, by Atmosphere Press. And we're here on Talk of the Towns, and we're sorry we can't engage you with phone calls. We're doing this on a recorded version, so um, I'm, I'm trying to my best to think of the questions that, that uh, listeners might be, be asking. So, again, Bridges talks about an ending, a neutral zone, and then new beginning. So when did that begin to take shape for you? Um, well, as I said, I sort of curled uh, into myself um, during that, the fall after and, um, and, did, and was doing all of this reading and talking to some people. Um, but at some point, and I, I did that for, uh, for a while, and then um, at some point, I um, I don't know whether this was really a turning point, but I went to a lecture by a woman who'd written a memoir, and she mentioned that she was taking on write, writing clients. And um, I had always, in my clinical life, I had written clinical articles, and actually, when I was in the process of retiring, I thought, oh, I'll just write articles for therapists to tell them how to do this kind of thing. Well. Um, no, I wasn't going to do that. But I had always loved writing, and um, but I never thought that I could give myself permission to sort of say, okay, I'm going to write something, I'm going to write a book. But I started working with this person, not knowing, again, what would come of it, and and she encouraged me to write about my experience, not about the theory and the research and the whatever I'd been used to writing. 
And the more she encouraged me to do that, the more um, I sort of uh, learned about my experience. Writing that way was a way of making sense of this whole journey. Um, And again, for a long time, I didn't think I was writing a book. I was just writing vignettes or scenes or reflections, musings about this experience of not just retiring, but of being, of, of change. That's really what it was about, of how change happened and how we bumble along. So finally, after um, I think about a year and a half, we realized it really was a book. And um, so I began to, to literally rewrite and put them into chapters, and it became this narrative of my new beginning, which is about writing. So the inner narrative for you was um, recognizing in some ways that you really enjoyed the process of writing and then kind of translating that you weren't going to write in a professional way from your past, but you were going to do something different. Well, I have to correct you. Okay. Writing, writing um, itself is often excruciatingly hard. <laughs> um, you're right that I, I, I always had a hankering to write. But um, the process of doing it really well, as we all know, is really, really hard. And it would, it would confuse me because I would, um, I would this, particularly this kind of writing, which is creative writing, which is not like the clinical writing. You, I didn't outline and this is where I'm going. No, you sit down and you wait for something to emerge. And um, some mornings it would be kind of two paragraphs and then I would cross them out and start all over again. So, so I think what I have truly loved is having written. Um, at, and that's not my, my, somebody else said that, but I, I love it. You know, it's not, I love writing, I love having written. Um, and I can't remember who said that, but it's not mine. What a wonderful phrase. I love that. Um, tell us a, a little bit about um, how you prepared space. That was a significant part of getting ready to write, was, was changing your space. Right. So, yeah, that's my, one of my chapters is sort of when I decided to take myself seriously as a writer, I, I decided again I had to do, uh, to, to, to be in it differently. So I, have, um, I had moved to an apartment, which was actually the beginning of the process of change for us, and in the, in the back of the apartment is, is a room that we, I've called my study. It's a wonderful room, but it was filled with um, piles of books, piles of paper, piles of you know, chotskis, little memorabilia, whatever. And, and, and it also has a big desk that, looked, that fronted a window. So literally, I thought the only way I could clear my mind of everything was to clear the space. So I spent... Um, as I describe in the book, a goodly amount of time literally putting everything out of sight and um, clearing the desk so it was sort of empty like a tarmac and um, and then sitting myself down and what I found at the beginning of the process was that the, this process of writing did, did involve staring out the window for long periods of time watching the birds fly and the, you know, the leaves fall and whatever. So um, that was really important, but that space, I, I realized that for me, having a place that writing happens has made a big difference. Um, so I, wherever I go, if I'm there for a long period, I try and create a little space for myself that I can um, 
sit down and focus or stare. Hmm. Um, so the, the pro- process of, of kind of staring, of, of kind of giving yourself permission, then that triggers thoughts that then turn into pieces of writing? Right. Um, my writing teacher um, suggested, and again at the beginning of my developing a discipline or a practice of writing, um, that even if I didn't produce anything, that I visit my writing every day. And that that term became a term for sitting down and letting your mind kind of go, whether it's reverie or just day, uh, daydreaming, um, active, I, I would call it wool gathering, um, that you're sort of collecting and harvesting sort of different fragments of thoughts or ideas or whatever. And sometimes it, it would be, you know, I'd describe how uh, sometimes it was just sort of interesting words that I would kind of write down um, that, that were, were musical or who, that stimulated the imagination or I'd um, think of different questions that, that sort of intrigued me um, like uh, well, one of the, uh, my husband's cousins once said how high is the sky and things that were ridiculous and sort of stimulate the imagination and then um, I'd so a lot of the time, I wasn't actually writing in a focused way. But then um, eventually, if, as I began to get better at the practice of writing and started writing chapters, I would just sort of um, let something emerge and, and develop ideas around it, but know that what I was actually writing the first time didn't have to, I mean, that, that was a big deal. Didn't have to be perfect, didn't have to be what it was. And letting go of the need to make it what it should be right away was a really important part of the creative process of allowing it to develop on, sort of organically on its own. So the, the new beginning was um, the beginning of you as a writer. Is that a good way to describe it? I think so. Even Even today I have... I sort of shy away from that because it's it's well you know why I shy away from it somebody else asked me this is because um because I feel like it's an identity and I think what I left behind and what Bridges says is you know y- y- you become a not a non-identity a nobody in some ways that's ultimately so freeing so if I'm if I don't define myself really as a writer but as a, I am writing then I don't feel the need to have something to show for it, which is the other thing I feel like you give up, you can give up at the second part of your life is I've sort of been there, done that, had things to show for. Now what I'm doing is simply what I'm doing. And the end product is is not as important as the process. And yet, you've produced a wonderful memoir <laughs> and published it. So, so what was that? I mean, you you freed yourself from needing to produce a product, but something said, "This is important. I want to share my process and and my thinking, my learning with, with others." Um, well, actually, I was ambivalent about that, um, and I didn't ever, th- for so long, I didn't think I I. In fact, it was hard. I I couldn't really think about sharing it with others while I was writing it. But my teacher, my coach, kept saying exactly what you said: "Is 
um, the personal, the more personal it is, the more universal it can become. You're doing a, a service for people. This is a gift you give. She, I mean, sort of every time we talked, she would sort of reiterate that, which was, I really needed that in order to, I mean, I didn't think about the reader most of the time that I was writing this, but at the end, in order to let it fly, let it out into the world, that was what um, uh, sort of allowed me to do that. Her, I mean, she'd, she'd written several books, but and, and is also uh, as private a person as I am, but she really showed me the way and that, that it was generous to do that. Mm. And um, my experience has been wonderful in the sense that with people's reactions because people have found it useful and resonant and I can't tell you how much that's meant to me. Mm. I just love that phrase that you you came to realize that this would be a generous thing to do. Um, that's wonderful. Uh, just, just that sense. I'm not producing a book. I'm giving something away. There's, there's something really important about that. Yeah. Um, my, my, uh, my writing coach um, compared it to um, alms bowls that Buddhists put out for people. And, I mean, those, that, those, that kind of metaphors were very helpful because it takes it out of my ego and, and said, okay, Rebecca, get over it. Just let it go. Let it fly. And she also said, and this was really true, is once you've done it, it's sort of not yours anymore. And I didn't, that was hard to believe when I was writing it, and yet she was right. You, you get done, and it's, it was really done. And that was the other surprise is I, I never knew when it was going to be done. And then, and then when I wrote the last chapter, it was really done. Um, the, this book seems to have a life of its own. I'm not sure. I controlled it. <laughs> well, I just remind listeners that we're talking with Rebecca Milliken, author of Gaining Altitude, Retirement, and Beyond. So you've been kind of doing what authors um, do, and that's to talk about the book, to, you know, to give, it's, it's part of that generosity of letting people know what's in it so that they might experience for themselves. What has been some of the reaction? How, how have you done that? You've been giving some talks locally. Yeah. Very few, <laughs> um, because I find it, um, I, I found it harder than I thought to talk about the book uh, with groups. Uh, I love talking about it individually. Um, but uh, the reactions have been really interesting and, very, and some substantive um, uh, sort of people's comments. For example, um, a young cousin of my husband's um, came to a talk I did at the Northeast Harbor Library. And he took exception with the fact that I call myself retired and even use that word. And I think he, he's, he's sort of right, even though retirement is the word in our society, so it sort of has some meaning for people. But he, uh, what we, we kind of rephrase it to say that this book is as much about rewirement or renewal or reinvention as it is about... Um, the process of getting ready to let go of what was, or it's about change. And um, he, um, another young person in that talk said that they, uh, th- th- these people are in their sort of 40 something, and said that it, it's a book that they found useful, even though they're not our age in 60s, because it, it, it helps them know about, it, it helped them think about their own transitions. And I think a lot of People at age 40 are often making job transitions or, you know, a lot of transitions. So it's, it, 
it sort of honors the fact that we all bumble around when we're trying to make a change and that there's a lot there that's not all, oh, great, let's just do the next thing. Mm. So uh, in terms of um, the next phase of life, it's, it's not about the next phase of work. It's the next phase of life. And you mentioned the, the brain research that says, oh, there's something different happening for people who are in our age bracket. So um, that gives you permission to say, oh, this, I'm in the next phase. I'm not retired. I'm in the next phase. Right. And, and this young cousin said, you know, you've written a book that's not retired or whatever. And I, I, I agree with him. Um, but I also think that the subject of retirement is so dicey that, that that's why um, when I was talking to the publisher about the title, um, I thought that, that I, I really felt putting retirement and beyond in as a subtitle was really important so that people would um, be invited to think about retirement and beyond. So sort of that's why it's, it's in there. Another reaction I had, which I think goes back to what we were talking about, about people's resistance to this idea, was um, a reaction of, of real sadness and confusion about I don't want to let go. I, I love that what I these skills I have developed, and I think there's a feeling that they really go away, or or they or you don't use them, or you're not valued for them, or you don't value them. And I worried about that. And one of the things I found was that um, this so surprised me is that. This, some things I loved about being a therapist, which was listening to people and um, kind of bringing thoughts to insights into conversations. But it, it all, the things I loved morphed into something else in, in my new life. Um, and I, I just, I don't feel I've lost those things I loved. So you're listening, but not to individuals who have come to you. You're listening to the world. You're listening to yourself. You're listening to the to the nature that that kind of invades, comes through the windows, or when you go out into it, you're listening. You're still using that listening skill, right? And also, I'm uh, as a therapist, you're often listening from from a vantage point of somebody coming with a problem. So. This has been fascinating because it opens up the possibility of someone just talking, people talking about all kinds of things that are sort of more positive often. And um, it's just been, it's been different. I I tell a story when I was a therapist um, and I used to go to, you know, party or something and people would say, well, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm a therapist. And person would often glaze over and not talk anymore or whatever, whatever, and I didn't blame them. But so when I, I got, after I got, after I retired, I found, again, surprised myself because I sort of like to say to people, well, what do, well they'd say, what do I do? And I'd say, I'm retired. And I, I kind of like that. And then what I found was that people would then really talk to me as opposed to before, you know, and they sort of opened up. And um, so it's been it, that's been one of the many surprises I found in the experience. So what do you suppose that um, willingness to talk is about um, for them? Is it because they're seeing someone that they say, oh, I can do that too, or they're intrigued by what your, what your experience is? What, what opens them up to, to, to talk with you? I'm not sure I know. 
I have to think about that. Um, I don't. Uh, maybe, maybe the fact is that I'm not in a hurry anymore, um, because oftentimes, I mean, that is another striking thing about this experience versus my old life is that I'm really not in a hurry. So maybe there's just something that happens where the the person might feel that I I will I will listen out to the end or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure I consciously think that, but. <laughs> I do consciously think about not being in a hurry. I'm probably one of those people now on the roads that's going too slowly and making everyone <laughs> upset. Well, I think that that's that process of, of rewirement means that, and maybe it, there is some brain chemistry that says it's time to slow down. <laughs> maybe our brains crave this slowing down after you know um, 40, 50 years of very busy life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and also not multitasking. Um, being able to think something out to the end of the time, you know, sort of follow your thoughts. That was one of the things that that the writing practice, uh, you know, I, I really noticed is if you start, if you really have the time and attention to follow a thought to where it might logically go that you don't know, then you really do arrive at a, at a new place. So I think there's something to that. Um, and thank thank heavens I'm lucky enough to have for this moment, good health and sort of, you know, sort of security so that I, I have the luxury of doing this and not having to worry about mm. things right mm. now, except for the world. Any other reactions to um, taking this book out into the world? Um, any, anything that comes from your readings or um, conversations? Any other um, reactions that have surprised you or intrigued you? Well, one question I've gotten quite frequently is what's next? What's my next book? Which, uh, again, sort of never, it didn't occur to me to think about. Um, I'd certainly like to go on writing. Um, But I have become curious about what I would feel passionate enough about to, you know, once I, let me back up. When I started working with my my teachers, Sarah, um, I, I wrote sort of pieces that didn't go together. And then when she finally said, look, you have a collection here, um, I really loved that, that I was then writing around a fo- with a focus toward something. And I realized that in what I want to do is figure out another focus and, um, and sort of write around that or read around that because it, it's so um, enriching to do that. Plus, um, I want to interview more people, but I got to figure out what I want to ask them. Mm. I, I, I really do love it, it. It is extraordinary to me what people will tell you. I mean, and I'm not talking about personal intimate stuff, but just um, what they when you ha- when I went and interviewed people about retirement, um, what I learned about how they got to where they got to and what they what they felt about freedom. That was the other um, big question that I loved was um, what does this kind of freedom hold that, you know, when you, when you are freed up from all those responsibilities and your previous sort of life roles and what people, how, what people made of that. Do, do you remember any of those that, that stood out? What, what does freedom look like and what does it do for people as you talk with folks? Anything stand out in terms of, of what freedom meant? Um, well, it, uh, it, it, 
obviously one of the things it meant was the kind of reflection on um, putting aside all that responsibility that people held. But the other thing, um, I, I uh, describe a conversation I had with a, um, a man who I worked with on a board, <clears throat> a nonprofit organization board, and he and I, it was sort of a, we had sort of a debacle, and, um, and at any rate, so what we just, what he mentioned is, is that freedom held the ability to fail and to reflect on how much failure in his life had taught him. And it made me really reflect on what that failure, I felt I had failed. In, in that, terms of that nonprofit work. In, that, that in terms of that, um, of how much that had um, deeply uh, shaped my thinking about, I mean, it really changed me in a way that was very, very useful. And John, this friend of mine, said, you know, you know the good stuff we really, really doesn't teach us half as much as the failures. And that seems so common sense, and probably everybody knew it long before I knew it. But at any rate, it, it was a wonderful reflection, and it made me reflect a lot after I interviewed him on, on failure mm-hmm. and on, on what, what different failures do for us. And as you described, um, you're not sure what your next focus will be, but the writing will be the way that you get at that focus or, or that you, you know, so that that's the thread there. That it's, the writing is the thread, but the focus may change. Mm-hmm. The, the writing practice right. will be so that it, it's, it's sort of, I hadn't thought about it until you asked me this, but it's sort of this thing of, of uh, orbiting around a focus, whether it's through reading, conversation, thinking, or dreaming, or whatever, um, and sort of collecting those little remnants until they coagulate into something that might be something, and it might not. But it's so, it's so grounding um, compared to, you know, life goes on and we are in these interactions and we're doing all this stuff, but I find returning to that is very, very grounding. It's sort of that thinking and learning. Mm. And, and like your fisherman friend who turned um, the, the, into, into a creative outlet, um, the writing provides that for you as well. Yeah, yeah. it provides uh, the creative outlet and also the discovery, the, the, the opportunity for discovery. Mm. Um, in a surpri- I mean, still, I'm surprised. So you, you kind of close the book with three questions, um, and I'm just going to, we can talk about those, but I'll just um, read them at this point. What does it mean to be happy in a world so grim? That's a pretty heavy one, and we're certainly feeling that grimness now. Um, why do I have to believe what experts tell us? And I'm not talking about, or you're not talking about Dr. Fauci. We want to believe him. And, 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 the, other, and the third question is, um, how is it that what I want and do now is so different than what it used to be? So, you know, in the, in the remaining few minutes we have, um, give us some thoughts about some of those questions. Well, the first one, I think it's pretty self-evident. Um, I, I really do... I feel it's it's pretty important for me to recognize how privileged I am and and to hold while I'm having such a rich and nourishing time to hold the the reality that so much of the world is in such distress it, it's very sobering and um, I, I think I, I spent a lot of time 
um, I have spent a lot of time in life thinking about what, what's our responsibility there and how do we bear witness but also contribute. Um, so that's my thought on those. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second one about experts, I, um, I, I, this came up as a result of the very beginning of the process of my saying, I really don't like what AARP has to say about aging or what so many, what the narrative has been, what we were programmed to believe about this time of life. So, but I've always been a person who looked to the experts sort of thinking, well, I don't really know enough about that scientific thing. So at any rate, I, I really felt like it was important to challenge that, that narrative. The other thing is um, I wanted a book to, I wanted a book to kind of explain things. To, I mean, I always looked to sort of who are the authorities, what can I read that will help me in this experience. And finally, I realized, uh, I, well, I was reading a memoir by Alexander Chi, who said, um, I wrote the book I needed to read. And I realized that that's what I needed to do because I couldn't find another. Most of the books on retirement were how to financial security, you know, all the all the tips and tricks and whatever. And so, um, so this book is really an example of challenging experts in an odd kind of way. Mm. So, in in some ways, I hear you say um, something like, um, "I'm the I, I become the expert I need because my life experience." Is valid enough right. in which to make some some judgment, some decisions, some some sense of, of the world. Right. I might even challenge the word expert. Okay. Because right. I feel as if part of part of what they say about getting older and and what your brain can do is that realizing that there's there may not be one answer, and there certainly isn't one experience. Um, yes, there's scientific reality, and we need to pay attention, but. Um, I don't feel like I'm an expert, but I'm offering a perspective that I think is grounded enough to be useful. Right, right. And how about that last question? I think you, you mentioned it um, earlier. Um, how is it that what I want and do now is so different than what it used to be? <laughs> That's a, such a great question. Now, I, don't, I don't know how to quite make sense of it. <laughs> um, it's, it's total reality. I mean, I'm just, I just feel what I want to do and and be now is very, very different. Um, and I guess what I would say about this is, is it, was, it, it was totally unanticipated. I don't think you can plan, but I feel so lucky to have evolved into it. Well, thank you. This hour has gone very fast. Um, been delighted to talk with Rebecca Milliken, author of Gaining Altitude, Retirement, and Beyond, published by Atmosphere Press in 2021. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our program can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Rebecca Milliken. Thanks to those who are listening, and thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6, and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.